Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Rachel, and on today's New Statesman podcast, I'm speaking to the chief political correspondent at the BBC, Adam Fleming, about his new podcast series on Boris Johnson. This is the final New Statesman podcast before we find out who the next Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister is going to be. Today, we're looking back over Boris Johnson's legacy, reflecting on his character, how he made it to the top job in the country, and what his time in office means for politics in the future. I'm joined by Adam Fleming, Chief Political Correspondent at the BBC, whose new podcast series, Boris, answers exactly those questions. Hi, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us at New Statesman. I've got to ask, Boris Johnson is probably one of the politicians that even before he was Prime Minister, people actually knew something about, and we've certainly learned a lot about him over the last three years. So what was it that made you decide, actually, at the end of his time in power, we actually really need this series to go back and work out who he really is? Oh, I actually thought the same as you initially when the controller of Radio 4 and the bosses said, oh, could you work really quickly and make this series? I thought, haven't we heard loads of stories and haven't we spent all day, every day psychoanalyzing this man for years already? But then I thought about it some more and I thought, well, first of all, there's probably some other stories out there that will illuminate his character and his life and his way of operating that we haven't heard before. So it's worth just seeing if that's the case. And then I realized quite quickly, just in that period after he announced his resignation and then the Tory leadership race got started straight away, I thought, hang on, there hasn't been a moment where we've all caught our breath to really ask ourselves, why has this person been brought down as prime minister? Actually, what did he do when he was there? And how did he get there? We have moved on to the next thing already because that's what the news does. That's what the news has to do. And I then got quite excited about this idea that I very grandly call the second draft of history in that the stuff that Laura Kunzberg and Chris Mason were doing on the news every night. Yeah, we've got used to that as the first draft of history. We've got used to the fact that a few months later and a few years later, you get the long newspaper articles or the magazine articles or the biographies. I thought, isn't there a gap in the middle where we can just stretch the news out a little bit and merge news, history, analysis, documentary, all into sort of a new format uh, and experiment with that and see where we go with that. And the beauty of podcasting is that there's a lot more space to do these things now. We're also a lot more comfortable as broadcasters with the idea of just putting a few smart people in a room 
and having a really good curated conversation with them rather than spending months going and interviewing this person then interviewing that person and finding the archive and spending months and months editing it to within an inch of its life so it sounds really polished. So actually there's a space that you can do this stuff. There's a format that we're much more comfortable with and there's an audience out there now who actually wants to spend a bit more time looking at something in depth. So all those things came together and I thought, yeah, this is going to be a really interesting thing to do. And that, that proved to be the case. It's certainly very interesting listening to it. And it's really quite wide in its scope in that you've got eight episodes. You start off with his birth, essentially. He was born, he grew up and takes you all the way through school, university, a journalism years, city hall years, first time in, in government and then the end or the last three years that we'll be more familiar with. But given how dense a lot of that subject material is, it's actually quite fun. You've managed to basically do it in a way that's quite, in some cases, lighthearted, not too argumentative, not too aggressive, even when you've got people very much disagreeing with you. What was your kind of thinking for the guests that you wanted to get on there and how you wanted to present the story that is the life and times of Boris Johnson? So I applied to this project, what I've tried to apply to all my politics coverage and all the broadcasting I've done for the last few years, because when I first went to Westminster as a very junior little baby journalist, I was quite surprised that the people in, in the place and the way that they interacted with each other was not as aggressive as you would see on the news. You had people who had friends of a different political persuasion and they'd have the argument in parliament and they have a drink afterwards, or you'd have people enjoying themselves doing their job, and their job was politics. And also you had a load of nerds there as well. It wasn't just all like bash, bash, bash politics. You had people that, that cared about issues and cared about finding stuff out and cared about history and the nuance and stuff like that. So I've always, as a journalist, tried to reflect that bit of Westminster that's a bit more humane, a bit less argumentative. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say fun because it's grappling with big issues that affect people's lives. So fun's not the right word, but people who do get something out of being there, it's not just a sort of, it's like a battle or a chore or something like that. And so that's what I tried to apply to my, my reporting during Brexit, what I've tried to apply to the podcasting during COVID. And then I tried to apply it when I went back to Westminster to be the chief political correspondent a couple of years ago. And I, so that's the approach I took, I took for this. Let's make a product that reflects just what life is like at Westminster, which isn't just 100% serious. Sometimes there are laughs, sometimes there are friendships, sometimes there are falling outs. So I wanted to convey that, that, that feeling. Then the fact is you've just got the character that you're profiling, in this case, Boris Johnson, somebody who's got multiple facets to their personality. And one of those facets is somebody who likes having a good time and somebody who likes making people laugh and sees it all as a big adventure. So of course, that affects how the tone of the product as well. And then in terms of the guests, we wanted people who knew stuff. So not just people who had observed stuff and then could come to a kind of opinion about it. We wanted people who'd seen stuff, experienced stuff, or spent a lot of time thinking about it so that they could just together give us a nice rounded portrait of this person. And that's why you end up with a combination of, for his early years, his biographers who've spent a long time combing through his school record and speaking to his old teachers, or people who were at university with him in his orbit, or later on. And some people have been quite critical of us giving so much airtime to Jacob Rees-Mogg in the last episode, but Jacob Rees-Mogg is one of the best people to explain what the, the Boris Johnson crowd were thinking and doing and the decisions they were making 
in the final days. So he's a person that you've got to you've got to have in there, I think. And that was about thinking in terms of the tone we wanted for the whole thing. And then just how we cast it, to use the horrible jargon that they use in documentaries. I didn't think there was much that I could learn, certainly about the last couple of years of Boris Johnson having followed it very closely. And you're absolutely right. There are insights there from Jacob Rees-Mogg, which haven't been widely reported. And you can agree with them or you can disagree with them. But it's very interesting to to hear them saying it. I think the earlier episodes are quite are quite fun, sometimes quite outrageous. There are some wonderful stories about his time in the Oxford Union trying to win an election to become president and how he viewed that whole setup and some great anecdotes about early early years in journalism, making up quotes on the front page of the Times and then going off to Brussels, the Telegraph, and again, just <laughs> making stuff up. Um, there's a line in there that from one of your guests that I just feel sums up all of Boris which is when he was filing his copy from Brussels, blurring the line between information and entertainment, which is interesting because it's a theme that seems to have run throughout his career, whatever it was that he was doing. Now, you say at the beginning of each episode that you are focusing on character and that's what you're trying to get to the bottom of. What is the character of this man who made it to the top job in the country? Do you think you got there? Do you think you succeeded in uncovering the character of Boris Johnson? I'm not sure if we actually did because and I'll tell you why because even after doing these eight episodes and speaking to all these people I do not have a pat kind of soundbite answer that explains who he is and why he behaves the way he does and I'm not sure many other people actually do and I think that's for a number of reasons one I don't think many people know the entire Boris Johnson incredibly well I think there are multiple bits of his personality that some people know really well, and only a very small handful of people know all of the aspects and can put the whole picture together. So the rest of us are left just trying to piece it all together for ourselves and work out who this person is. And then that point I just made about there being multiple facets of his character, there's a bit where Ian Duncan Smith is talking about the time when Boris Johnson was a backbencher, he was editing The Spectator. And he had to go to Liverpool to apologise for that column that someone had written in The Spectator that was deemed to be very offensive to, to, to people in Liverpool. And Ian Duncan Smith said, I saw a completely different side to Boris Johnson, who was apologetic, seemed quite upset and was incredibly serious when he was doing the interviews on local radio in Liverpool that day. And I put it to Ian Duncan Smith. It's like, oh, so which one was the real Boris Johnson, the funny one or the serious one? And IDS says, no, they both existed at the same time. It's just you got one or the other. And I think that is why it's quite hard to pin Boris Johnson down into, as I said, a very sort of pat soundbite version. And also, if you rewind back to his childhood, you talked about the episodes about his childhood and university. When he was very young and his family knew him as Al, because his first name is Alexander, he had, he had glue ear, which made him a little bit withdrawn as a very young child. He told Michael Cockrell, the documentary maker, that when he was tween, although we would call it a tween then, one of his favourite things to do was get on the tube, go across London, go to the British Museum, sit in a corner and read a book by himself. And it was only when he went to Eton and realised you could become popular by making people laugh and go up on stage and make people laugh that then that much more ebullient Boris Johnson character came to exist. But the fact is those two characters existed at the same time from that point onwards. And th yeah, that's why he's a, a tricky person to categorise. And then also, it's a great advert for the series. If you can't sum it up in one sentence, that means you've got to listen to all eight episodes. <laughs> well, given that 
people are going to go listen to all of the episodes, not asking you to give away any spoilers. But I wondered, as somebody who, as you said at the start, has covered him and thought you knew him very well, what were the particular interviews or anecdotes that you heard while making this series that really surprised you or made you go, what, really, that's not what I expected at all? There are a few. I think from the very last episode of the Jacob Rees-Mogg, not to give Jacob Rees-Mogg even more airtime, I said to him, what is it like when you go into a conversation with Boris Johnson and can you understand why people accuse him of being dishonest and not telling the truth? Mm. And Jacob Rees-Mogg has this really interesting answer where he says, if you go in and speak to Boris Johnson, he's such a lovely chap and he's so well-meaning that he'll tell you things that, that maybe you want to hear, but you'll not commit to certain things and he will commit to certain other things. And you have to understand that it's only if he definitively says yes to he's committed to it and he's agreed to it. And he said, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you have to learn how to interpret what Boris Johnson is saying. So to me, that made sense of a lot of things where people maybe accuse him of lying, but actually he didn't necessarily lie. It's just that people heard what they wanted to hear and he allowed them to hear what they wanted to hear. So there was that. I was also quite surprised that during the Vote Leave campaign, it does seem that he raised some concerns with Dominic Cummings about some of the key messages of that campaign. So the £350 million a week for the NHS on the side of the red bus. Initially, it does sound that Boris Johnson was a little bit unsure about that number. And Will Walden, his very close advisor from that time, said that he took a little bit of convincing from Dominic Cummings that that, that, that was a, a, a good thing to use in the campaign. And then there was another moment where, do you remember when Nigel Farage in the Brexit campaign unveiled that poster with all the queues yeah. of, of Syrian migrants um, in the countryside, somewhere in the EU, maybe Austria, somewhere like that. I can't remember exactly where it was. And Vote Leave, the official Leave campaign, then did a, a version of that poster that weekend. Apparently, Boris Johnson went through the roof that weekend and was furious that Boat Leaf had done such a such a, an anti-immigrant poster that he felt was just not in keeping with what he was about. And also those doubts about Brexit. We all knew about the famous two newspaper columns that he wrote, one arguing for Remain, one arguing for Leave. There's an interesting discussion in one of the programs about how actually that's a technique that newspaper columnists sometimes do use to help them just decide what they think. It's not purely, I don't know what to do. But there's another great example of Boris Johnson in real time working out the pros and cons of leaving the EU or remaining. And he was having lunch again with Will Walden, his very close advisor, who's just a brilliant person to interview because he knows all the stories. And Tom Bradby, the ITV News at 10 presenter. And they're in this restaurant having lunch. And Tom Bradbury says to Boris Johnson, give me the reasons for staying. Give me the reasons for leaving. Make the case on both sides of the argument for me in front of me. And Boris Johnson goes one better than that. He actually starts scribbling on the tablecloth. Here are the reasons to stay. Here are the reasons to go. And then as they're leaving, Tom Bradbury with his eye on posterity, he's like, oh, I'll just take the tablecloth. And it's a paper tablecloth, so it's not like a fancy linen tablecloth. And then Will was like, I'm getting that. And they have this tug of war over the tablecloth, which then rips out of Bradby's hands and Will Walden's now got it. And so I just thought that, A, that's a great story. And also you can imagine actually being a fellow diner in that restaurant, seeing the scribbling, seeing the tug of war around Boris Johnson. But it does just reinforce that there may have been a point potentially where Boris Johnson did not want to leave the EU. And he was going through that thought process as he weighed up the options and went through it more than once. It's a turning point for history, isn't it? I just want to go back to just what you were saying a minute ago about whether or not he lies and Jacob Rees-Mogg's argument that he doesn't lie, people just misinterpret what he's saying. Now, 
there are quite a few examples of things that, shall we say, an ordinary person might think of as being lies from whether or not parties did or didn't happen, from who paid for flat renovations and how those decisions got made, to what he knew or didn't know about Chris Pincher. There are quite a lot of occasions where it looks very much like Boris Johnson has made a clear, unambiguous statement. And then it turns out that wasn't necessarily the case. And yet he manages to bounce back from that. And there are people, particularly people who've been watching the US quite closely, who would call him Britain's first post-truth prime minister, that he manages to get away with his alternative facts. And it was incredibly frustrating to watch if you weren't a Boris Johnson supporter while he was in office to watch him get away with that. Do you think that's a fair charge? And if it is, do you think looking ahead to the person who's very likely to be the next prime minister, that is something that will continue and be part of his legacy? So I'm just wriggling around here, not because that's a tricky question, but because the lights keep going out in this bit of broadcasting <laughs> house if I sit still for too long. It's now, let me, rig- let me wriggle rhetorically. So the first thing to say about that is, as a, when I was the chief political correspondent, you quite often had to distinguish between what Boris Johnson said about something or didn't say about something and what people around him said. So I remember one day being one of the first people to get the line from Downing Street that said unequivocally, there were no parties. Now, that was a line from somebody around Boris Johnson that sort of then got attached to him and mangled by him verbally. So there's some of the things that he's accused of saying he maybe didn't necessarily say. Then you've got the fact that he, Boris Johnson, is such an imprecise speaker. And it used to drive us mad in the newsroom sometimes when he'd be doing that thing that we call the pool clip where he goes and speaks to all the broad, like one broadcaster on behalf of all the broadcasters. And what you want is just a quite pithy summation of the government's position some days. You don't necessarily need some grand inquisition. And he'd go, blah, 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 we're around about houses. And actually, it was just sometimes quite hard to work out what he actually was saying. Then there's just the journalistic thing of assembling the evidence in such an incontrovertible way to prove that somebody has deliberately manipulated what they said to lie is quite a high bar. And that evidence isn't always available. Then there's the fact that you've got to take statements and issues and incidents and moments on a case-by-case basis because all those factors can go into those things. And so the kind of I'm just trying to reveal to people the difficulties you have as a broadcast political journalist about just saying this is a lie or that person is a liar. It's so hard to actually get to that exact point. And it's interesting when a lot of people talk about making bold statements like that. It's like bold statements are difficult to come to if you're an impartial journalist whose job is to gather as many facts as you can and present them to the audience with a bit of analysis, but ultimately leaving the audience to to make up their own mind. And when people say Boris Johnson got away with things, it's like, well, he's had to step down as prime minister. Ultimately, he didn't. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale, 
Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, we're it, recording this in the final days of the Boris Johnson government. I wonder, looking ahead to how we're going to, or how political journalists are going to cover the next government and report on what looks at the moment very likely to be Liz Truss as, as Prime Minister, uh, do you think that's going to have an impact? There's a guest, I can't quite remember who it is, but on the very last episode, who says that part of Boris Johnson's legacy will be how much he tested the norms and precedents of government working out, was he actually unable to do something or did everyone just think he was? And I think there's probably an extent to that with the media as well. Liz Truss has just, just heard, dropped out of a planned interview she was going to do with the Robinson of the BBC, having said that she would put herself up to that level of scrutiny. Is this a kind of permanent change in how politicians relate to journalists and relate to the media? Or do you think he was an aberration? Well, and Nick Robinson is just about to be on Newscast, the episode of Newscast I'm about to record after speaking to you. So we'll find out what Nick Robinson's feelings are. I wish I'd spoken to him before so I could then just copy and paste them and parrot them now from a much more experienced broadcaster. But let me uh, try it by myself. I think yeah, it's true that lots of those norms and things were really pushed. And so things like the prorogation, although I do always point out to people that the Supreme Court rule, ruled the prorogation was illegal. So the system actually did kick in and quote unquote, work at that point. It just didn't react instantly to what people saw as a terrible thing to, to have done. But it did. It got there in the end. I think the flip side of all of that, though, is that journalists and members of the public and even parliamentarians are just so much more aware of all the tools at their disposal and how those tools can be used for good or ill. 
And I'll give you an example. Remember back to the days where the government tried to change the rules about the parliamentary disciplinary procedures so that Owen Paterson would have a less severe punishment for breaking the rules about lobbying. And some of the people involved in that say they did it for very good motives because his wife had taken her own life and they thought he deserved some kind of leniency as a result of that. And there was no way in the system for that leniency to be injected into the system. But it ended up with the government looking like it was trying to fix the system to help one of their own. Now, everyone is now aware of, of that example. And you can already see murmurs about, oh, will Liz trust when she's prime minister, if she wins the leadership, find a way of derailing this privileges committee investigation into Boris Johnson about whether he misled parliament. Now, the reason people are starting to sniff around that, though, is because we've just been quite well trained by the Owen Paterson episode to look for that sort of thing happening. We're just so much more aware of yeah, the uses and misuses of the tools that are available. And it, it reminds me of Brexit, which it was many things, but one of the things, it was an amazing course for political journalists in parliamentary procedure, like humble addresses and emergency debates. And actually, everyone has been using those tools and watching out for those tools much more closely since they were used that time round. So I do just think that like our knowledge and our experience is growing all the time, which helps us to hold people to account. But then, of course, you've got the other force, which is that if politicians are finding it even harder to govern and the problems are getting even bigger and they feel the media is out to get them even more, well, yeah, what do they do? So it's almost a game of cat and mouse. The politicians get better at finding techniques and loopholes and the journalists get better at sussing them out and investigating. And by, by the end of it, everyone has a fuller knowledge of how our parliamentary democracy works. <laughs> but also nothing gets yeah, done. For good or ill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. And I was just thinking on the way to come and sit down with you that it's interesting that during the Tory leadership campaign, obviously the focus is on the candidates and their leadership and their personal attributes. And obviously, a documentary series about Boris Johnson, you're thinking about the character of that person. And of course, that's super important. But they are a person in a big old system that involves their political party, the news, events like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the opposition, the media. And so actually, the personality is just one aspect of actually how we end up being governed. So you have to listen, you have to, listen to Boris the series on BBC Sounds, but also you have to listen to the rest of the news as well. <laughs> So two final questions about you and the way you cover things. The first is you're very good on this series about not sharing your own experience or indeed opinion. It's all about the guests and what they can bring to the table. And sometimes they disagree with each other in a lovely, polite, civil way. But obviously you have covered Boris Johnson and worked with him. Are there any particular anecdotes that you think are particularly illuminating having made this series? And secondly, you will be covering the new prime minister in a week's time. Is there anything that you will be doing differently, having learnt from the last three years of Prime Minister Johnson? Oh, those are good questions. I I haven't really met Boris Johnson very often. And any time I have, it's been quite fleeting. So I don't have any kind of personal anecdotes of being with him or around him that that can illuminate that question. But I'm just trying to think of like, what's the quintessential Boris Johnson moment for me? I remember his Tory party conference speech. When was it? Was it last year? Do you remember? And there was a big section about Stoke Poges. Yeah. And I just remember listening to that story, listening to that speech, but with my proper nerdy political journalist hat on, ready to write down the things of note from that speech that, that were news. And the page was blank. 
And I thought, <laughs> what was the point of that? But the activists in the hall were loving it and it made them feel something. And I realized at that point, and maybe it was because I'd spent a few years in Brussels where everything's very processy and paper-based. I was like, oh, hang on. I've been underestimating the importance of character and personality and kind of vibes in this system. And actually, that was a quite important moment for me to realize that, that in the British political system works a lot on vibes, not just yeah. bits of no, paper that- with specific things. And so some people would be like, oh, he's just he's an all vibe prime minister. That's awful. But vibes are important. And I don't know why I'm keeping saying the very 80s word vibes over and over again. <laughs> so the, 80s, so the, the word vibes yeah. is back. Very much yeah, so. Yeah, and also another bit, I remember watching the speech he gave to the CBI conference in Newcastle. Do you remember Peppa Pig World? Yeah. And I remember very early on in that speech, spotting him, rustling the papers and losing his place. And I thought, something has gone wrong with this pile of paper in front of him. And then a few minutes later, it all went to pieces. And that's when we got the famous, Im- infamous Peppa Pig bit. And of course, everyone goes, who's this guy going on about Peppa Pig world? Blah, 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 blah. But actually, if you'd witnessed the whole event, you could see the tiny little tremors that led up to the Peppa Pig earthquake. And it wasn't just because he was a certain way or hadn't done enough work. There was something going on there. And I just think that's why it's always worth just trying to look at the whole picture rather than just a little bit of it. And in terms of covering the next prime minister, it is going to be, can't think of a word to preview what this next period is going to be. A new prime minister with an incre- even more fractious conservative party with a huge domestic economic crisis. All the cliches, we all know all the things that are in Liz Truss's in-tray as, or Rishi Sunak, or Rishi Sunak's in-tray. We all know the, the problems that are mounting up. And then I was just interviewing Jenny Harries from the UK Health Security Agency for an episode of Newscast. And she's, oh, all the signs are showing that maybe flu season will come early this year. And actually flu will start hitting the NHS in October or September rather than November or December. And we've got no idea what will happen with COVID. And we've got no idea if people have learned the lesson that if you've got a cough, you shouldn't go to the office. And yeah, by the way, there could be another variation of COVID that's worse than Omicron. And yeah, and you realize that just the the challenge of the NHS isn't just, oh, throw some more money in or some people work harder or we've just tweaked the system here. There are many complicated things for the next prime minister to deal with. Oh, and guess he'll still be around offering commentary on how they're doing. Boris Johnson, like he will not be able to help himself because everything about him screams that he wants to be a part of national life and that he thinks he's got good ideas for how the country should be governed. So it's going to be an incredibly bumpy ride. And just remember the whole freight that you know, that cliche about campaigning and poetry and governing and prose. It's just so true of all of them. Adam Fleming, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunlett, and my guest, Adam Fleming. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.